I don't often go to the movies. Uh, if I go to one movie a year, that's maybe average, and that's probably because we're in Louisville and John wants to take us to a movie. Uh, so we go to a movie once in a while. If I see two movies a year, that's probably over the top. Uh, back in the day, I saw more movies when I was younger. I'm just not a video person, and I don't like to sit still. Uh, but I've been to enough movies, I know, that at the end, sometimes the end really isn't an end. It's uh, to be continued. Now, it looks like the end because people have left the theater. Um, the credits are playing, and the credits are actually pretty long. Uh, checking on YouTube, I think they can run five to eight, nine minutes long because uh, it eventually goes from these where you get the whole screen to yourself in your name. It eventually starts looking like that where anybody that had anything at all to do with the movie gets some sort of credit. But there are some movies, if you stick around long enough, it suddenly bursts back to life, and you realize that, that even though it looked like the end of the story, for better or worse, whether you were sad or happy, whether you felt like things were resolved or not, it looked like the end. It really wasn't the end, that there's really another chapter coming. Well, clearly this is kind of a metaphor I'm using for the resurrection, because it looked like the end. Uh, all the Gospels have this crucifixion story that couldn't be worse. It couldn't be more unjust. It looked like the end. All the disciples thought it was the end, but it really wasn't. It really wasn't. So that's what I want to talk about this morning using that as an illustration. So I'm going to skip the credits, and I'm going to go to the four Gospels. The four Gospels are not redundant, but they have the same themes the same major stories, but each one is unique enough that it isn't merely a duplication of what the other Gospels said. I think last week, even when we celebrated Palm Sunday, which is also a, a terrific Sunday, when we celebrated Palm Sunday, I made note of the fact that the Palm Sunday is recorded in all four Gospels, which is highly unusual, because the Lord's Supper, the last supper Jesus shared with his disciples, is only shared in three Gospels. Jesus' miraculous birth is only shared in two Gospels. But his entrance triumphantly into Jerusalem on the Sunday before the Sunday we're at now is recorded in all four Gospels. But each one is unique. Mark is generally believed to be the first Gospel written, followed by Matthew, followed by Luke, and then John would be the last. That's not unanimous, that's just kind of a general consensus among conservative Bible scholars. But let me start with the traditional approach, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. It's uh, sometimes called the Gospel for Jews. In Matthew's Gospel, you're going to read a lot of, this was done to fulfill the prophecy, because the Jews know all about their Old Testament scriptures, their First Testament scriptures. And so as Matthew, one of, the follow, one of the apostles of Jesus, as Matthew works through his gospel, he keeps referencing back to the first testament. This was already written. We should already know this. It's a fulfillment of what the prophet said. That's the first gospel. The second gospel, oh, the first gospel too, by the way, since it's written primarily or chiefly with Jews in mind, Matthew's gospel has a genealogy for Jesus. And it goes all the way back to Abraham, because Abraham is the father of the Jews. 
A Jewish person by ethnicity is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just Abraham to be an Israelite. You have to be a descendant of Abraham, followed by Isaac, followed by Jacob. But he's the father of the Jews, the father of the Israelite nation. That's the first gospel. The second gospel, Mark, is the shortest of the, th- of the four. It's a gospel with a lot of action. Mark, uh, in church history, is understood to have received uh, the information from his association with the apostle Peter. And you kind of get the idea that Peter, in the gospels, is a man of action. Uh, Peter is somebody who's always on the go, always says something just a little too soon. He's the most interrupted man in the Bible. Uh, he's interrupted by Jesus. He's interrupted by, uh, on some level, maybe Paul. He's interrupted by God at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's interrupted a lot because he says things before he really thinks, at least early on. Mark's gospel doesn't have a genealogy because I think Mark would say, who wants to read that? Like, it is important. It's inspired by God. I mean, and there's a reason why it's there, but... But Peter, that's just not where he's at. He's, he's a man of action. He wants to see things get done. So that's Mark's gospel. That's Mark's contribution. The third gospel is Luke. And Luke widens the lens. It widens the focus. Because the gospel isn't merely for the Jewish nation. It's for these outliers, these outcasts, these people that seem like they don't fit. Seem like they might not be included. It includes Gentiles, too. So Luke's gospel widens the lens. He does have a genealogy, but he doesn't go back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. He takes Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. Because whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're a descendant of Adam. The last gospel, John, he doesn't really have a genealogy either, but he takes Jesus' identity all the way back to existing as God and surrendering surrendering the glory he shared with the Father to be made a man, to become a human. But he highlights Jesus' deity. Those are the four Gospels. The Gospel that I want to draw our attention to today, focus our attention on is the Gospel of Luke. So we're actually going to, in just a moment, not yet, but in just a moment, we'll kind of work through this little pink sheet that's in your bulletin. The story that we read Uh, In Luke chapter 24, in the end of chapter 23, we'll kind of work through that, kind of color in some of the detail, and then we'll draw some conclusions at the end. But if you look at Luke's gospel as a whole, beyond what I've already told you, one of the ways to kind of think about Luke's gospel, which is somewhat unique, is that Luke's gospel is kind of written like a travelogue, more than the other gospels. Luke has a lot of stories where people are moving. They're going places. Luke also, by the way, wrote the, a second companion, a second book called Acts of the Apostles. So a fun fact, a fun trivia fact, uh, is that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. Most people think it's Paul, simply because Paul wrote so many letters. Luke only wrote two books, his Gospel and Acts of the Apostles. And if you put those together... Luke wrote more of the New Testament than Paul or any other gospel writer. But he's always on the move. He's always talking about stories. So let me give you some examples. In Luke chapter 1, you've got uh, two individuals. They're an older couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They live in the hill country outside of Jerusalem, but he's called up for his duties as a priest to go to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. 
Uh, while he's serving in the temple, he's greeted by an angel inside the temple. He's told that he and his wife are going to bear a son in their old age. The son will be the forerunner to the Messiah, to Jesus. Um, they'll give him the name John, which isn't a family name, which seems surprising. And relatives don't understand initially, but it was given by God. You were going to name this child John. We know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. After he serves in the temple, John Elizabeth leave Jerusalem and go back to the hill country of Judah, wherever that is. It's somewhere in the region, somewhere outside of Jerusalem. But it opens up with a traveling story. And then before chapter 1 has ended, you've got an angel Gabriel visiting Mary up in Galilee where she's told she's going to bear the Lord's Messiah. And what does she do? She travels down to visit her relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And she touches base with them. So it's a traveling story in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we all know chapter 2, it opens up with Caesar Augustus issuing a decree that the world must be registered. And so, you've got a traveling story. You've got Joseph taking his betrothed, Mary, and they travel down to Bethlehem. That's how chapter 2 opens. And while they're in Bethlehem, Mary delivers her firstborn son, Jesus, who will be the Lord, who is the Lord. He will be the Savior. That's in chapter 2. If I skip all the way ahead to chapters 22 and 23, I've got the story of Jesus' suffering and his crucifixion in chapters 22 and 23. But chapters 22 and 23 actually kind of started all the way back at chapter 9 and verse 51, where I read, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from the end of chapter 9, all the way through to chapters 22 and 23, Jesus is making his way, he's traveling to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. It's this crazy travelogue that Luke likes to write. Now if I throw in Acts of the Apostles, I've got Jesus' very last words that are ever recorded before he ascends into heaven, before he leaves his disciples, and then ten days later will pour out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And his last words before ascending are, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then Acts of the Apostles explodes into this massive travelogue where the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then out to the ends of the earth, which so far as they're understanding it, in their context, it's the edges of the Roman Empire. And then the gospel's carried out even beyond that through church history. So a couple conclusions first about the gospel. My conclusion would be this that the gospel is timeless. It's good for Jews. It's good for Samaritans. It's good for Gentiles. The gospel is timeless in that it doesn't make any difference whether it's Western culture or Eastern culture. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a blue-collar job or a white-collar job. It doesn't make any difference whether you're male or female. It doesn't make any difference whether you're slave or free. It doesn't make any difference whether you're 21st century progressive and modern or first century, the gospel is timeless. It doesn't change. 
We don't need to change the gospel. We never did. The gospel does its own work. The gospel saves sinners. It doesn't accommodate cultures. That's the gospel. Martin, or, uh, Augustine said this, church father, uh, respected by both Western and Eastern traditions, mostly Western. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe but yourself. An initial question would be, is, are you familiar with the gospels? Do you know what Matthew wrote, Mark, Luke, and John? But if you only like the things you like and the things that make you uncomfortable or squeamish, or shameful, or guilty, then it's really not the gospel you believe. Because the gospel is what it is. We don't accommodate the gospel to our culture. We accommodate our lives to the gospel. So Augustine, I think, makes a good point. Now let's go back to our story. Luke chapter 23, 55 through chapter 24, verse 12. The women who'd come with Jesus from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath, <coughs> excuse me, according to the commandment. A traditional understanding of Christ's crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion as it took place on Friday. Uh, before Friday sundown, which in Jewish economy would be when the next day starts, it goes from sundown to sundown. So before the Sabbath arrived, Friday at sundown, what we know is that, uh, the, the women, the body's laid in a tomb. It's meant to be temporary because they're going to more formally embalm it after the Sabbath. They don't expect a resurrection, but they rest, according to the commandment, on the Sabbath day. So that's kind of how we ended chapter 23, and then chapter 24 opens with the discussion. And by the way, I get a few points of credit here because I did uh, a pretty good job of coming up with words that begin with the letter D. And I only do this about every 10 years, and at the end, I, I ran out of D words. But for myself, I, I did pretty good if you're like a Southern Baptist and that's kind of your thing. So chapter 24 opens, but at the first signs of dawn on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb taking with them the aromatic spices they had prepared. So there's a discussion taking place as these women are going to the tomb early on Sunday morning. And the discussion, according to Mark's gospel, the main part of the discussion, or at least what Mark mentions, is who's going to roll away the stone? I mean, we've got all these spices. We want to more formally lay his body to rest, but they really hadn't thought through how the stone will be rolled away. So we know in chapter 24, in case you're completely unfamiliar with the story, that somebody's died. Now, you know Jesus has died too, I think. But somebody has died, and they're laid in a tomb. And what do you do when somebody dies? In fact, what do you do when somebody dies a particularly horrific death that is unjust by any, any ordinary standard? This death was unjust, and it was tragic, and it was much, far too soon. What do you do in those circumstances? You do things like, we will always remember we will never forget. We will keep the memory alive. And so these women are going to the tomb, keeping the memory of Jesus alive. Because he was a wonderful person. And he did wonderful things. And his message resonated to the deepest parts of their soul. 
and they want to keep that memory alive. And they're having the discussion. And then we've got a disturbing discovery. It tells me they discovered that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But on going inside, the body of the Lord Jesus was not to be found. It's a disturbing discovery. They didn't expect the stone to be rolled away. But having had the stone rolled away, they expect to find the body inside because it's, he died. So there's two disturbing things. One is, how did the stone get moved? And then even more disturbing than that is, than that is what happened to the body? It's a very disturbing discovery. And it goes on, the next line says, while they were still puzzling over this. Puzzling is much too soft a word, but I'm not using, a, I'm using a pretty loose translation. But it uses the word puzzling. It's more than puzzling. They are bewildered. They are stupefied. They, they have no explanation. They're trying to process a lot of things that they have no explanation for. And nobody's coming up with a good solution. So puzzling, yeah, puzzling. They're like stupefied. What in the world? What are the possibilities? They're not even coming up with good guesses as they puzzle over this. And then there's a dazzling development. You like this? Dazzling development. Two men suddenly stood at their elbow dressed in dazzling light. Now, we know from one of the Gospels, those are angels. They appear as two men because that's what angels typically do when they appear. They appear as men. Angels in the Bible, there's really, other than like seraphim and cherubim, they don't have wings. They appear as men. But in this case, they're dressed in dazzling light because they're not men, though they appear as men. So this is a, this is a dazzling development. And, and what takes place next is the women are terribly frightened and turned their eyes away and looked at the ground. But the two men spoke to them. Now we know it's pretty straightforward what the men say, but if the men were a little sarcastic, if these angels were a little sarcastic, I, I almost want to think they'd say like, do you give up yet? <laughs> like you're puzzling over this? You have no clue what happened? I mean, can you not remember anything that Jesus might have said that pertained to this? Are you ready to give up? But the women are, they're terrified, they're not looking. They don't want to address these two men, but the two men spoke to them nonetheless, and they say, why do you look for the living among the dead? You know what religion is? It's dead creeds and dead songs and dead messages. It may make people feel good on some very superficial level, but dead religion isn't found in tombs. Or dead religion is found in tombs. Living religion is found outside the tomb. And so they're saying, why would you look for somebody who's living in merely dead orthodoxy, in merely what you do when somebody dies? Because this is not like an ordinary religion. It's not merely our job to keep the memory of Jesus alive. He is alive. He keeps us alive. And so that's the first question they ask. Then they say, he's not here, he's risen. A little light, a little light. He's not here, he's risen. Remember what he said to you. And then he talk, refers to Jesus as Jesus typically referred to himself as the son of man. I've kind of abbreviated that. But it's interesting, the angels tell the women, don't you remember what he said? 
It's not, they're not giving new information, really. I mean, the women are at a complete loss as to what has happened. And they're like, well, let me tell you what's happened. Let me tell you what you don't know. They're not giving new information. They're saying, don't you remember what he said? You already know the answer. It's almost like a Wizard of Oz. Like you could have gone home all along. All you had to do was tap your shoes. All you had to do was remember what he told you about the Son of Man. What did he say? He must be betrayed. He must be crucified. He must rise again the third day. He already told you that. And the interesting thing here is that verb must. It's the word, it's transliterated D-E-I, pronounced day. It's what is necessary, what must take place. It's an obligation. They're saying, Jesus said, he must be betrayed. It's part of the plan. He must be crucified. He must rise again the third day. Let me tell you the first time Luke ever uses that verb. It's not a super common verb in the New Testament. It's there a fair amount of times, but it's not, it's not one of the major verbs. But the first time Luke ever uses the verb in his gospel, it's in reference to something Jesus himself said. And it's found back in Luke chapter 2. And when his parents saw Jesus, that is, they found him, he's 12 years old, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or if you have a certain translation, Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? I must. It's an obligation. I've got no choice. It's the plan. It's why I came to do my father's bidding. I must be about my father's business. And his last words on the cross were, it is finished. I finished my father's business. The first time the word is ever used in the Gospels, Matthew's Gospel, it's an incident later than when Jesus was 12 years old. But the first time it appears in any of the Gospels, it's again a word used out of Jesus' mouth, and it's directly applying to what the angel is reminding the women what Jesus said. It looks like this in Matthew's Gospel. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He must. It's an obligation. It's his father's business. It's why he came. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. And Jesus rebuked Peter because it would happen. He would do his father's business. Well, let's go back to the women. Everything that happened, everything that had happened had been planned. Jesus had told his disciples, he told the women, they didn't remember. But Jesus was in on what happened. There was a reason for it. This didn't happen to Jesus and he had no idea it was the plan. He knew it was the plan, that's why he came. If Jesus was in on the plan, he must be betrayed. I must be betrayed. I must die. I must rise again. He must have had a reason for it. It it wasn't an accident. What was the purpose behind what happened? What was the purpose behind the plan? And that's revealed in all of the Bible from the First Testament all the way through to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It's revealed. What is the plan? Why must he die? 
Why must he be resurrected on the third day? But one really concise way to look at it is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For our sake he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The two kind of key words here are sin and righteousness. Because the Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, American, rich, poor, doesn't make any difference. We're all sinners. By nature, by choice, we have guilt and shame. Have you ever felt guilt? You know, in our culture, in our Western tradition, we minimize what guilt is by referring to it as a feeling. Do you feel guilty? I feel guilty. In the Bible, guilt is not primarily a feeling. It's a state. It's a condition. You are guilty. Because there's lots of people that are guilty whether they feel like it or not. Apart from Christ, you are guilty. I don't feel guilty. You're guilty. In the eyes of a holy God, you are guilty. And so, the righteousness of God, in whom there is no guilt, there's only holiness and righteousness. What is right? Christ came according to a a, perp, a plan of redemption set in place from before the foundation of the world. And he would bear my sin and I would receive his righteousness. He died because that's what sin requires. It requires death. It requires separation. Sinners can't stand in the presence of an altogether holy God. Christ said, I will take the place of all those who put their faith in me, they will receive my righteousness, I will bear their sin. He must die. He must rise again on the third day. Faith. We talk about this in Good News Club once in a while. We try to review it. We haven't reviewed it a whole lot this year as we're doing the parables. Which, by the way, all the pictures that are in the back foyer up on the on the bulletin board, those are all pictures that correspond to the parable that they've done the last week. Uh, most of the students have gotten really into coloring the pictures, and they do some marvelous jobs out there. So if you, ever, if you ever wonder what we're doing, take a look at the pictures, get an idea what parable they're learning. But faith in the Bible has three components that together comprise what biblical faith is. It starts with knowledge. Uh, you can't have faith if you don't know. Uh, you can't have faith in Jesus if you don't know anything about who he was. He's the eternal son of God who was made man. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died on a cross. He rose again the third day. That's knowledge. I'm telling you something you probably know. But if you didn't, I'm telling you now, and you are acquainted with knowledge. It doesn't mean you have faith, but it starts with knowledge. The second component of faith is assent. You have to agree. I think that's true. I think when, when what I'm telling you about Jesus, you can assent to. I think there was a man named Jesus. I'll even grant you, I think he came from God. I think he was God. I think he walked the earth. I think he, he lived without sin. He died on a cross. I, I'll even grant you he rose from the dead. So that's knowledge, that's agreement, but you still don't have biblical faith until you've added the third component of trust and confidence. I place my confidence in that man to take away my sin. Because I know I've got a burden of guilt and shame. 
I cannot take away. And depending on your tradition, depending on your background, you need to repent either of your sin or your righteousness. Tim Keller talks about that a lot. Repenting of your righteousness. Repenting of your righteousness is saying, you know, I could never do enough right deeds to earn God's favor. I could never do enough noble things that God says, yeah, I'm going to let you in because you did all these nice things. I've got to repent of my righteousness. It will never measure up to Christ's righteousness. So I've got to stop trying to earn God's favor and receive the favor that I have in Christ. That's what faith is. He's the one who takes away sin. He died that I would have life, that I would walk in newness of life. Faith in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. I'm not exactly sure what's next. I know it's not a D word. Oh, that's right. Chapter 24, here's the outcome. Then they did remember what he'd said. And they turned their backs on the tomb and went and told all this to the eleven and the others who were with them. By the way, uh, this is kind of a side note. If you put the Gospels together, when the women are going to the tomb and they see the stones rolled away, what happens next, if you put all the Gospels together, is Mary Magdalene doesn't go inside. She's the first one to go back to tell the disciples, the stones rolled away. The other women go inside and... They don't find the body of Jesus. And then these, these men in dazzling white speak to them and converse with them. So there's a group of women that have that encounter with the angels. Mary Magdalene was on her own. She comes back then later on her own, and Jesus greets her. It's a story recorded in the Gospel of John. But here you've got the women going back. They're telling the disciples, Don't you remember? We forgot too. But now we remember because these angels in dazzling light, they told us this is what he said must happen. It was part of the plan. Oh, there is a D word. There's disbelief and inquiry. But it struck them as sheer imagination and they did not believe the women because that's how dead Jesus was. If this was, you know, some modern and, and liberal churches want to make it out that, that Jesus' resurrection wasn't molecular, it wasn't bodily resurrection. It's just a spiritual resurrection. If all it is is a spiritual resurrection, there'd be no reason for them not to believe. Yes, we know he's alive. We keep him alive in our hearts. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I feel so good about knowing that. I feel so, you know, we keep the memory alive. He's still alive. No, it's not that... They don't believe because they know the women are saying, he is alive. I'm not talking the memory. I'm talking, you can touch him. I'm talking, he's a real person. He's just as much alive, more alive than he was before. That kind of alive. And they're like, you don't understand how dead he was. I don't know what happened. You don't understand how dead he was. And they, they know he's alive. And the disciples will find out he's alive. But not at first. Not at first. This part of the story ends with Peter. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. He stooped down and saw the linen cloths lying there all by themselves. And he went home wondering what had happened. He's kind of puzzled like the women are. 
And it's going to take Jesus appearing to him for him to remember to and to understand. But that's kind of really the state of every soul, right? That knows the story, that is acquainted with the knowledge. Here's the information. You've got a puzzle about it. You've got to wonder what exactly did happen. How is it that the church has flourished even more so when it's persecuted than when it's not? How is it that the church, the gospel message, can be so unchanged and powerful across the globe and cause people to write songs like what we sang this morning and cause the script- people to die that, pe- that we would have the scriptures in our hands to read what the gospel is? And my prayer is we don't become so acquainted with what we think the gospel is that it's kind of like you're inoculated but you haven't really caught the real thing, that the gospel really affects everything about who you are and why you live and what your hope is. Because our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And since my friend Sue's here, and she wants me to open it up for comments and questions on Resurrection Sunday, and it's only 10.30, I'm going to do that. Does anybody have any comment or question? Bail her out because she, she thinks you're going to. Yes, Carrie. I have no idea. <laughs> it's recorded, though, so it'll be posted. Okay. I have no idea. What's that? Uh, yeah, but I don't think that's what she was talking about. Uh, yeah. You weren't talking about the D words, yeah, yeah. Uh, Deborah. Yeah. From the the I do not know. Uh, I don't know. Somebody, has somebody been to well, Terry Appleby? Do you have any idea what the distance was from traditionally with the the tomb to where the disciples? Well, we don't really know where the disciples were. It, it would have been somewhere in or just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, the map's not on there, but Jesus, remember, spent a lot of time outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, so uh, a very manageable distance, but I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, probably, you know, no matter how you look at it, within a couple miles, two to five miles it would be my guess, uh, five probably being the most, probably less than that, but not not a long distance. Not, they're... They're in and around Jerusalem at this point. Yeah. Somebody else? Yeah, both. So, but so, in Romans chapter 1, you have a description of people that are very pagan, kind of a Gentile background, very immoral, and they have to repent of that immorality, that very flagrant immorality. In Romans chapter 2, you've got uh, that contrasted with Jewish people that have to repent of their righteousness, that they think, oh, we are not like Gentiles, we are not like those pagans that live such irreligious pagan lives. They, words that come out of their mouths are just full of bitterness and cursing and hate. And, but the Jews have to repent of their righteousness. I don't care how religious you are. I mean, I was baptized as a baby in a Lutheran church. I got baptized again as a believer in a Baptist church. I've never not been in church. But if my hope is in my church tradition or my combination church tradition, I've got to repent of my righteousness. So, um, yeah, in a sense, you've got to repent of both. Every, every self-righteous person, their sin is their self-righteousness, so you're repenting of that sin. 
But uh, good clarification. Somebody else? Becca, Rebecca. Christianity too. In other words, a cultural Christianity that doesn't really worship or know the risen Savior. I think, uh, was it last week I read the quote by Bob George? Uh, we're in Bob George's book, Classic Christianity. Bob George had the, this realization, this awareness where, where he believed, like, in his relationship with God, God said, you know, Bob, you used to share me with people. Now you share what you know about me. And honestly, I was convicted by that. Like, you know, it's easy for me to share what I think I know rather than share out of a real relationship. So if I'm not sharing out of a real relationship... If, Christ, it's, if it's not really a dynamic living relationship and all I'm doing is sharing creeds and doctrinal truths, that's dead. That's dead. And I've been in churches like, you know, my own Lutheran tradition was largely dead. It doesn't mean everybody there was dead. I was dead. And the sense was people were just going through the motions of saying the right things at the right times, following the prescription, and everything was good. And, and real Christianity is a relationship. It's not just a practice, a routine of what you happen to do or how you happen to live. Yeah. Yeah. Although then you've also got the story where, where Jesus talks to Thomas, who's doubting Thomas, and he says... You know, blessed are those who will believe without having seen, which is us, which is us. We're going to close with two songs. We're going to do uh, Oh Praise the Name, Anastasis, which will be on the stereo, and then Jonathan will lead us in, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. I'll let you stay seated for the first song. <laughs>